Hi, my name is Carolyn Crocker. Our second reading is from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast its, the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord, by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The word of the Lord. Good morning. These are going to be real important. Glad I got those. Let's pray. Dear God, we come on this morning and we give you praise and worship and thanks. You are worthy of our songs and of our intercessions and of our lives and of our time. You alone are worthy of all these things and we come and give ourselves to you and ask that you again would teach and watch over us. We pray for the kids that have just exited and their teachers. We pray for all the high school kids who are down at Breakaway Now and groggy after two nights of not much sleep. We pray that your spirit would continue to move on hearts and minds there, and you watch over especially their volunteers and leaders. And we pray for us. We pray for the men and women and children here, those on our right and on our left, and know that you alone know all we need. And so we ask you to speak and grant us the ears to hear and respond to you. 
In your name, amen. Amen, I'm Dean Miller, and I'm on staff here. And when I was growing up, uh, mostly it was in California, but for two years, sixth grade and seventh grade, we lived in Annapolis, Maryland. It's this interesting anomaly from Orange County, California, to Annapolis, and then back to California. And uh, if you live in Annapolis, you can't help but be affected by the Naval Academy, right? Because the Naval Academy is there. It's, it's in the ethos of communities, teams, schools, churches, stores. Um, and it was a lovely place to live. It's an it's a, a immersed experience in this real interesting subculture for those couple of years. And as a part of that, I have a lot of friends whose parents either were staff or faculty at the academy. And so you would hear about their lives and you'd go do stuff on the academy that they could do that you, you know, the average common person wouldn't get to do. So you'd be down in the bowels of the library or these houses or figuring out where the tunnels go, stuff like that. And in one of these, uh, with some of my brother's friends, I played my first video game. This is a while ago, no one needs to know when, but it's a while ago, and so it wasn't really a video game. There was a terminal, like a screen you could look at, but the game was really line coded. It was a game where you were the ruler or the king of a, a made up country, and they, you would be given certain things to help you be the king, and they would create situations, and you'd have to figure out basically how to rule. And so the line, it'd be like just typewritten words, this paragraph would come out, here's what's happening. And you'd, so you'd start off with a smaller group, and see what kind of king you were. And typically, um, it, it wasn't that hard to figure out what it meant to be a good king or a bad king. So the, you had a certain amount of wealth to spend on your military and your, your crops so you could plant and then the harvest and your people so they would be strong and their families would flourish and they'd grow into a bigger kingdom and they'd, ideally you'd keep growing and you'd rule the world as a sixth grader, which is pretty great. But of course, you didn't do that. The game would throw you different curves and you'd have to figure out, well, do I, do I want a stronger military or would I rather have all the money for me and my building, my palace that I'm working on? Or do I really care if my subjects, kids get education? Maybe not. I'd probably like to have a stronger military. It's set like in the 15, 1600s. So what would happen is you'd get real clean feedback on if you're a good or bad king or not because if, if you, for instance, didn't feed your people, they'd revolt and overthrow you and kill you. Um, or if you didn't have any kind of military, you, the Hottentots would come and overthrow your walls and you'd get thrown off that way. And so over time you figure out, oh, being a good king and a bad king, it's, there's some very simple ways to be one or the other of those. It wasn't hard to figure out what's distinctive. And this, this morning we're finishing our series in Kings, which we've been in the entire year of 2023, by looking at the good kings. You know, we, I was thinking this morning, we've called this series The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and we are finally to the good. We've looked at a lot of other things, but this morning we're looking at the good kings and what it meant for them to be different, to be called good kings, not by me, but by the, the, te the biblical text. These are kings who did a good job before God with their people. And again, the central issue in kings is, is their and Israel's devotion to God. The central issue. And that means the key question this morning is how do the good kings cultivate that devotion to God? What's different about their devotion in their life so that they aren't overthrown by the Hottentots or by people in revolt? And if you remember last week, I said we're basically doing one sermon over two weeks leading up to Lent. So last week was bad kings, this is good kings. And then in the last part of this sermon this morning, I'll make a couple comments that will sort of shift us into thinking about Ash Wednesday and Lent just in a few days. Now, some of us were probably here last week, and you may remember, can anybody remember what the three major concerns of the bad kings were? 
It's gonna be on a slide if you're not sure, so you can cheat. But it was provision, right, for having food for them and their people, and then protection because we said it was essentially a almost always war zone that they lived in in the ancient East for the kings at that point. And then salvation, what, what would save them? What God, as they looked around and had God devoted to them and God committed to them, they also had other gods around that their, their neighbors would say, hey, this God could save you and that God could save you. We saw last week that God, in fact, does care about those concerns, just like those concerns for us, which again are the same those kings had, but that the bad things, kings consistently turned away from God to address those concerns with options other than Yahweh. And we use this one lovely quote from a Bible scholar, a commentator, that essentially the, the kings, the bad kings, simply could not put their fundamental trust in God. What they needed instead, the same scholar said, was to have elemental confidence that God was committed to them. Again, not that hard to see what makes a good king or a bad king or a good son and daughter of God sitting here this morning or a bad one. It's worth noting again as we move on to the good kings that they had the same concerns as the bad kings and that we have. They were concerned about provision and protection and salvation. But they respond differently. They choose to respond with these same concerns in a different way. First they respond with their affiliation. Then they respond with their supplication. And then lastly they respond with wholesale reformation. First, again, the good kings deepen their devotion to God through their affiliation. The good kings make sure in their need and concerns as the ebb and flows of life threaten their devotion to turn and affiliate with God in a unique way. If you were to turn and read 2 Kings 18, you'd learn about one of the really great kings named Hezekiah. Anybody ever heard the name Hezekiah? He's one of the top really two of the entire book of First and Second Kings. And in chapter 18, Assyria, which we learned about some last week, is attacking Judah. At this point, Assyria's already wiped out Israel and they turn their face to Judah. And Hezekiah looks at the Syrian coming. This is a new king of Assyria called Sennacherib. And he says, I'm gonna buy him off. I'm not gonna buy him off like some of the bad kings we learned about last week and bring his idols into the temple. But what I am gonna do is take money and say, hey, go away. I'll give you some of our money if you don't attack us. So he does that. Things look great for a while. But what we learn is trusting the Assyrians is never a pathway to health. So they say, great. They go away a little while. And then Sennacherib decides, ah, I'm going to come anyway. And he sends his, his uh, troops and the captain of the guard to Jerusalem. They begin to besiege Jerusalem in chapter 18. And the, the leader of the troops Sennacherib, sort of captain of the guard, comes to the city and the leaders of Jerusalem come out and they begin to talk along the city walls. And the, the Syrian words are so threatening that the Jerusalem leaders say, hey, can you use another language so the people on the wall won't understand just how much trouble we're in? And this guy says, no, forget it. Go back and tell Hezekiah, look, Assyria's coming. It's who we are. Look, it's not only what we do. Look at all the other gods we've overthrown. Who are you to think that your God would protect you? Hezekiah has a chance in this place with this very real concern about provision and protection to figure out who he's going to affiliate with, who he's going to hitch his wagon to. And what he does, if you keep reading into chapter 19, is he turns to God and says, okay, you and me, God. I turn and trust not only that I can, can focus my devotion on you, but to remember your utter devotion and commitment to Israel. 
that that is actually where my devotion begins, is in your devotion to me. Here is some of first what the Assyrians say. Then the Rabshakeh, that's the captain of the guard, stood and says to the Judeans, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Remember that concern about provision? Assyria is saying, I got it. I'll give, I'll give you everything you need. Until then, I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Hear the echo of Exodus in there? A land full of milk and honey. Hey, if you obey me, if you worship my gods, if you trust me, you do those things that you know are wrong before God, but you know, this might give me the provision and protection I need. I'll give you a whole land full of milk and honey, boy, that paragraph is a little too on the nose, isn't it? But Hezekiah turns to God and it says, no, I, Yahweh, am putting my own life and the life of your people, my people, in your hands. This is what he says in chapter 19. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. How, how do we respond in that situation again? These same concerns, something that we know might be, not be right, might be promising, us, promising again a different job, more money, freedom from anxiety. Hey, maybe your kids will be okay. Those concerns that burn and keep you at, up at night. Save me, O oh God. Again, for all intents and purposes, at this point to the Israeli eyes, to those people in the city of Jerusalem, Assyria owns the world. It looks like God has left the world stage at this point. It would be easier. Look, they just promised us food here. We're all hungry, and they're going to take us to Assyria, and we're going to have this rich land. Remember, we go back to Genesis. Israel's been given the land. They're supposed to stay in the land because God loves them and is devoted to them. Does it ever feel lonely right now to be a Christian? And like God has left the stage and like other people own the world. In that place, you can, you can step into the boots of Hezekiah and say, no, I will affiliate with God. I will turn when it looks so dire and I will trust God. God does come. All the Assyrians are conquered. He extends Hezekiah's life for his obedience. Hezekiah's an amazing king. Second, the way the good kings deepen their devotion to God is through their supplication, the way they intercede and offer their lives to God. They take these concerns and the way they ignite that affiliation is in prayer. There's an Old Testament scholar named Klaus Westerman, and he spent a lot of time looking at the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, and, and asking questions about what is faith, deep faith and prayer really look like? Is there a pattern? Can we learn so that we live out in our own life a lives like the men and women in the Old Testament? 
Now, if you're gonna answer the question, what do you think faith looks like? What do you think devoted faith looks like for somebody faithful to God? Do you think it starts with someone who has a real strong theological understanding? Here's all I believe. Or do you think it starts with someone who is, has utter confidence, free of anxiety, free of doubt, free of discouragement? Do you think it starts in the mouth of the young who frankly don't know well enough to what the world could be like? And of course, they're full of faith. Or maybe the folks who are old, and it seems like all those concerns, they've kind of got them on the back end. They've already raised kids and paid for a mortgage and they can have faith. Maybe you think it's the faith of people you look across the other sides of the church here and you think, well, they look like they've got their act together better. They probably have faith. I bet their faith looks strong. What Westerman says is that faith and utter devotion begins not in those areas, but begins in a, in a cry of need and distress. That true faith begins in a cry of need and distress. And you see it here in this prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah has deep, devoted faith. And what does he say? Lord, I know you'll take care of us. I'm fine. I'm not worried at all. I just wanted to say, hey, see if you need anything. No. Save us, please, from the hands of Sennacherib, who's mocking you. Westerman goes on to highlight that Israel, in an act of faith, must speak. Their devotion must have action. They must target their lives toward God. They can't just complain amongst themselves. They for sure can't go to other gods. They must speak vertically to Yahweh. Cry out, shout out, focus their desperate devotion on God. And it is in this initiation that the relationship with God, their devotion, their supplication, tightens their affiliation. God then often responds and he can choose to wait or respond, of course, in his good time because sometimes he doesn't. But more often than not, characteristically, what God does is hear, answer, intervene, and save. I often like to joke about the gospel math. I love the gospel math there. We get to do one thing, cry out, and God responds four times our one thing. Hear, answer, intervene, and save. Can you hear the thread of the Beatitudes in this lovely Old Testament scholar's words? Can you see that they're, they're blessed because they declare their poverty of spirit to God? Hezekiah is blessed because he says, save us, God, because I can't save myself. If we want to practice and learn from the devotion of these good kings, then we can learn this lovely pattern crying out to God with our concerns. Again, you, we've said at other times, other series, believers argue with God and skeptics argue about God. That's a great line from Eugene Peterson. If, we followed, if you followed me around this week and I saw the ebbs and flow of my week, how often would my cries first be to God and, instead of horizontally in frustration or irritation to somebody about something or someone? What we see is these good kings don't just affiliate with God. They take that affiliation and they offer and supplicate about their lives. Dear God, save us. It's a steady pattern of devotion. Then third, after affiliation and supplication, these kings, the good kings, take on full-on reformation. And here I want to focus a bit on the passage that Caroline read this morning about Josiah. 
A few years ago, I had a chance to do some travel and, and work some church-connected stuff in Africa, and I wanted to know more about Africa, so I asked a friend who's done a lot of work in Africa what I should read. And he recommended this book. It's called The Fate of Africa by a man named Martin Meredith who's written all kinds of books, very long books on Africa. This is a long book. It took a long time. And if you, this book is, is dealing with the history of Africa since independence, really since the late 40s and early 50s. Tumultuous times, coming out of colonialism, figuring out governments and economies and trade, all kinds of complicated things. And when you read this, the chapter on South Africa, you get a deeper look at just what an amazing man Nelson Mandela is. I think we all probably know Nelson Mandela is an amazing person, really was. But you read the chapter on him and you see how singular he is in South Africa in his leadership, his selflessness, his forgiveness. But if you read the whole book, you realize he's utterly singular and unique in his leadership, his selflessness, and forgiveness. And if you read Josiah, which I would really encourage you to do, I'm gonna tell you why in a minute, but chapters 23 and 24, you'll be amazed at Josiah. He's amazing. But if you've been keeping up and you read the entire corpus of First and Second Kings, you realize, oh my gosh, this guy was singular, unbelievable, the pinnacle of the kingdom. This is August Kunkel, a scholar we've quoted several times in this series. Josiah is the long-awaited king promised by the prophet of Judah to reverse the cursed idol way back in Jeroboam, and we covered Jeroboam several weeks ago in, Jerusalem, or in January. He's described as following in the ways of David, which is pretty good. You're like David. It's a pretty good affirmation in Israel. But he's also described in the same terms as the ideal king of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that's going even farther back, right? That's even more impressive. Joseph does not turn from the teaching of the covenant to the right or to the left. Literally, there is no king like Josiah. He exceeds even Hezekiah in his devotion to the teaching of Moses. Josiah is the second Moses to compliment King Hezekiah, who had been the ideal second David. The second Moses. That is stunning referencing. Kunkel goes on, Josiah's, Josiah's reign is climactic in the book of Kings. It's the high point of the Deuteronomistic history, which began at the entrance to the promised land. The high point of Israel, this is over 600 years, is Josiah's reign. We think about David and Solomon, they're real important, but we've already looked at how Solomon failed. And, and the reason Josiah was prophesied about several hundred years before was because of the, the idols Solomon brought in that Jeroboam built on. Josiah has to come in. He has to be better than David, better than Hezekiah. Take, and he instead looks at the, the law of Moses and inclines his heart and mind and kingdom to keeping the covenant of Moses. The high point of Israeli of Israelite history since the promised land. Devoted, good king, great king. Kunkel, one last line. Josiah is the only king to turn to God in accordance with the law of Moses. He is the converse of his grandfather, Manasseh, who was maybe the most evil king in Israel or Judah, other than Ahab. Josiah's reign begins in 640 BC. And he reigns during the declining years of the Assyrian Empire, which begins with the death 
of Ashurbanipal, one of the kings of Assyria. That's why in the passage you heard read, as Josiah is tearing down idols, he's able to go into Israel because Assyria is not as strong there anymore, like when Hezekiah was king. Josiah becomes king when he's only eight, after the terrible reigns of his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon. Both, again, Manasseh certainly in the top three most evil kings of Israel and Judah. Not a poll you want to win, by the way. When he's 26 years old, so 622 B.C., during a temple renovation, they find the book of the law that was probably lost during his grandfather's reign because if you're Manasseh and you're bringing all kinds of idols and sacrifices to other idols into the temple, you kind of want to take your book of the law and maybe hide it under a chair somewhere. And they read it, and, and Josiah reads it. He reads what Moses commanded. He reads the way they're supposed to be devoted to God. He reads of God's utter passionate love for Israel. And he's devastated. He, he falls down. He tears his clothes, and he weeps because he realizes, oh my gosh, what we have done is terrible. What can I do? And so he then undertakes wholesale reformation. He does four significant things. First, he gathers all the people. The text in chapter 22 says the small and the great, little everybody. And they renew their covenant with Yahweh. They say, we know you are devoted to us. We will be devoted to you. It is a elementally confident act of devotion to God. And one scholar says this is important because it shows that Israel is committed to an radically alternative ethic and aimed at an alternative future in the world. They're like, we are a community committed to God and we're gonna have a different way to live and how we live and we're gonna have a different ethic and future in the world. Does that again sound like any community you know about? The church, we're radically committed to a God who's committed to us and we're brought together to live differently as a signpost in the world. Here's the church. Here's the church. He brings the people together. They make a public commitment of their devotion. Then he cleanses the temple. That's the passage you heard. And if you've been reading Kings, what you would begin to notice is probably, wait, those are all the idols the bad kings have brought into the temple and the hillsides all around Israel. Remember, Solomon built a temple to Baal on the hillside, the Mount of Olives, next to the temple. Here, Josiah is tearing it down. They, they worship the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. He goes to Bethel, tears it down. He doesn't just tear it down. It says he burns it. And then he takes the ashes and they spread the ashes on graves. They desecrate the idols of the false idols, all these different places. And you realize, oh, he's cleansing. Everything that's happened negatively, everything that's built up since Solomon, Josiah is repenting of and reforming. It's like a national time of physical repentance. Then, after the covenant making and the cleansing, if you keep reading in chapter 23, it says, and then... Josiah kept the Passover, and they all kept the Passover. That doesn't sound like that big a deal, right? Like, I remember Passover, shouldn't they have been doing that every year? It's the first public mention of the Passover, done publicly, since the book of Joshua. 600 years. What we believe is they were keeping it privately and in families. It was happening but not publicly, not by the leaders, not by those in charge, not by people committed who have responsibility to care for other people and the young. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
First and second Samuel, first and almost the end of second Kings. Finally, we're keeping the Passover again. Joshua was 1240s BC. Again, I said Josiah is 640 BC. Now think back to last week and earlier with Jeroboam. Do you want to know why people go to Bethel and Dan and worship a calf that saved them from Egypt? Because they stopped telling each other the truth about who saved them from Egypt for 600 years. They didn't, in their devotion, repeat, recite, gather again to be an ethically different people with an alternative future, to celebrate who really saves. Again, please read these two chapters. Josiah is stunning. This is stunning stuff. I get it, as you can tell, I get a little excited about it. Are you concerned about how tempted you are to look for salvation or your kids for salvation or your friends, other loved ones you have to other places? Then you should be making sure that we physically, communally gather together to remind each other who really saves us because we know we're concerned about things that beckon our devotion that will lead us to death. When we're tempted and we make public statements, and when we're tempted, we make private statements because the fourth thing he does for Reformation that Josiah does is he goes through neighborhoods and they take out household idols, the things you and I kept on our, our, over our fireplace that we might've worshiped and just, you know, just in case we need a little bump, right? Your checking account or maybe that, the, the way you're gonna backstab somebody, maybe get that promotion at work, or those things at your heart and your home. He also goes through and they have to bring out household idols. They throw, overthrow fortune tellers. People get disciplined in very significant and painful ways because he's saying, no, our utter devotion is to Yahweh. Public devotion, private devotion. This is 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. No king. The pinnacle of history for them. Which is going to lead me to Lent and Ash Wednesday and again devotion. What we see in the life of Josiah and Hezekiah and even in the bad kings is your and my devotion matter. How we, how we focus our heart, mind, and body, the ways we give attention to what we affiliate with, how we pray and supplicate, and how we repent and offer to God a desire for renewal. Several of us were at the ordination ceremony yesterday for our new bishop, and he had to answer like public questions about his devotion in front of all of us. He'd already been vetted several times in such a way that the beginning of the service is really more a legal part. It's actually like our weddings. He was legally presented by the committees. And essentially what they're saying is we believe he's devoted to Jesus and will be devoted to us. And then he had to answer publicly eight questions on his knees with all the other bishops there and the archbishop. Pretty stunning ceremony. Then they do a litany of prayers for people there, but particularly ordained people because it's a service, particularly part of the ordination structure. And they pray for clergy, like Johnny and Corky and those Juan and Steph, those of us who are ordained. And what do they say? What verb did they use in one of the prayers? 
May those who hear your ministers be devoted to Jesus. And what, what Ash Wednesday and Lent do is give us a season in the church calendar that beckon our devotion. Historically, what we've done is set aside seasons where we, where we tend our devotion and we say to God, you know what, sometimes I am tempted to look other places for protection and provision and salvation. And I need your help. Sometimes I want to affiliate with other things. Sometimes it seems our world, no one wants to affiliate with us or me. And so we get to, to start that season in just a couple of days. I've got a little paragraph here sort of explaining Ash Wednesday. Again, it's a season, a celebration that, of Lent that starts with Ash Wednesday, dates back to the 11th century. As the inauguration of season of Lent in the church calendar, oftentimes it was also sort of the this first step in people becoming baptized on Easter, part of the training and confirmation preparation they would do. The service reminds us of our finiteness and our need for God, especially in the words recited when ashes are applied to our foreheads. From dust we have come, and to dust we shall return. Ash Wednesday also turns our faces toward the Lenten focus of repentance and intercession and often to taking on new spiritual habits for the 40 days of Lent. And I list a couple here. Again, the, the goal of Ash Wednesday and of Lent is to, to, to offer our devotion to God, to ask him to prune it, to reform it, to grow it. So I just wanna give a couple practicals because we can take a few days and think and pray before Wednesday about these. First, I'd encourage you to remember that God is utterly devoted to you. God is utterly devoted to you. Every day of the week, every hour of the day, every minute of the day. Good day, bad day, concern, not concern. Man, woman, boy, girl. God is utterly devoted to you. And our response in devotion is what is he is beckoning. What broke Josiah's heart was realizing the God who saves us, who saved us, who is the God of the universe, we've broken his heart for hundreds of years. So I'd encourage you to think about and ask God, Lord, in how can I enjoy you and practice devotion during Lent? Because the goal is, is enjoying the Lord and deeper life with the Lord. It isn't the habit or the thing you might do or not do. Dear God, how can I enjoy you and cultivate motivation to you like Josiah this Lent? And then I would encourage you to think about a couple different categories. One is either maybe you want to take on something. So that might be a new spiritual, capital S, Holy Spirit, spiritual habit. You might want to fast in some way. Could just be a meal a week, like lunch on Wednesdays. Could be listen to the radio in the car. Could be I won't use my phone from noon to eight every day. Could be almost anything. You can pick. Could be these are I'm giving illustrations of things either I've done or friends of mine have done. You could prayer walk an hour a day. Our rector, my rector, during grad school. That's what he would do. He decided one Lent he was going to get up and prayer walk Vancouver from six to seven because he knew if, I, if he kneeled from six, he was going to fall asleep. So he decided, I'm going to get up more. You might want to spend 10 minutes a day in silence just to listen to God. If you do that, have a piece of paper nearby, take a pen, and all the things that are going to come that aren't silent, just write those down. You can get to them after those 10 minutes. And it'll probably take you a week or two before you'll feel like Oh, it's, I'm a still enough water to really hear God. 
You might wanna send a note of encouragement to somebody every day. Seek to bless somebody else. I know a woman who a few years ago after her kids were out of the house for college and she was in between jobs, she decided she was gonna read the whole Bible during Lent and that's what she did. So take something on. Or you might wanna take something off and these are the things we probably hear more about. You're not gonna do sugar or caffeine, maybe no dessert, maybe chocolate. You can see sugar is a good theme in my life, right? You might have to take these. I had a friend, this, and I remember thinking, I can't do that. It's probably common on my own devotion. But I, I, a friend who decided, this was back in my 20s, he was not gonna watch March Madness, the NCAAs, for Lent that year. I was like, dude, you are devoted. You love Jesus. Again, I'd encourage us all, that we have a, about 72 hours before we're together again on Ash Wednesday, a, a public communal Josiah-like gathering, covenant gathering of our public devotion. If you can be with us 7.30 Wednesday night at the Assemblies of God over here, great. Some of you might not be able to do that because of kids or work. I'd encourage you to look at maybe an, a church nearby that has those. There's, all our Catholic brothers and sisters have multiple services that day and they start probably at seven in the morning. So maybe you can't join us, but you wanna go for one of those and be a part of that community for that day. But ask and pray this question, Lord, how can I enjoy you and cultivate more devotion to you like Josiah this Lent. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the life and for the story of Josiah, that we can know this about him, for how he and Hezekiah, even at the tail end of Judah, he didn't throw in the towel when he realized just how bad things were. He ran to you, not from you. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. You would give us particular ways we can enjoy you this Lent. Ways that we know are from you that are unique to us and how you've made us that spark our enjoyment and our joy and increase our devotion unto you. In your name, amen.